All right, thank you so much, worship team and uh, company. So great to see uh, all of you here this morning. If you're listening online later, thanks for doing that later. Before I get started for where we're going this morning, I want to do a shameless commercial for what's happening here in two weeks. Uh, In two weeks, on January 1st, the first Sunday of the year, we're starting a new teaching series, and we're calling it this, God for the Grown-Up. A childlike faith doesn't require a childlike God. This is a series designed to uh, speak to people who maybe have grown up in the church but have outgrown their faith. People who have a seven-year-old version of God that works in Sunday school but doesn't work in the real world, where real adult questions get asked about this childhood or Sunday school type God. We're going to be addressing questions of how do I even know who God is? How can I know an invisible God? What about evil and suffering and God in the middle of that? Can there be a supernatural God in a scientific world and can he survive those questions? We're going to be asking questions like that. So if you know somebody or if you are a somebody here this morning or listening to this and you'd like to be here for that, I'm telling you now, this is where we're going and we'd love to have you invite people around you who may be interested in this type of conversation. God for the grown-up, the childlike faith, doesn't require a childlike God. That's what we're going to kick off in January 1. All right? Look at the response. That was great. Okay. All right. There we go. I don't know what I was looking for, but more than just kind of, okay, we got something. That's good. All right. That's January 1. All right. That's where we're going next uh, two weeks. Next Sunday morning, we will be here uh, at 10 o'clock. There will be no 9 o'clock hour here. Uh, if you come, you can just do whatever you want, 9 o'clock. But at 10 o'clock is when we're going to gather and uh, have a uh, Christmas celebration on Christmas Day and then let you go uh, do whatever you might like. But we'd be glad to, to see you here if you're able to make it. Um, so we are rolling into the third part of a four-part series this morning that is in the middle of a series we're calling Christmas in Grinchland with a big idea that we are living in a world in which our hearts have shrunk in size as a result of sin entering the world in which we live, which I'm calling Grinchland that our hearts, like the Grinch, got too small and not as big and generous as they were made to be. And that at Christmas time, God has given us a tremendous gift in the person of Jesus Christ and kind of dropped Christmas into Grinchland as if we can look at this great gift and have our hearts drawn to something more, to what we're actually made to be. So this morning, I want to kick off this uh, idea on generosity this way by thinking with you about the type of, the kind of year that we are in or the the, uh, place in the year that we are in. Not only in two weeks are we starting a new series, but also in two weeks um, or less than that, many of us and people around you who you work with or go to school with are going to do something that they're going to call a New Year's, what? Resolution. Now, some of you are over that. You've been down that road before, and it hasn't worked, and so you're done with that. Others are like, you know what? It's a time to review my life, going to make some changes, whatever. But we're at that time of year where new ideas, new resolutions come into play, and I understand that. And here's why this works, kind of. We know that we need plans to move ideas from action, right? We need a plan to move ideas to action right? If you ever uh, talk to a young lady who's being courted by a young man and he is slow to the commitment phase, make a plan, my friend, or you're going to lose her heart, right? Like, get on with it, okay? Like, commit to something. You might have the idea of enjoying her company, but unless you move that plan to action or that idea to action via a plan, you're going to lose. We know that we need plans, right, to move from ideas to actions. It's very simple. 
works on the dating world, works on the dieting world. We need a plan, right? We need a plan if you want to lose weight. Good intentions are not good enough. You've heard, if you've been here before, you've heard me talk about four frogs on a log. Remember that? Four frogs on a log and two decide to jump off. And how many are left? Those who have been here before know the answer is four. Because it's one thing to decide and it's another thing to jump. Right? Like deciding or intending is fine, good, good start. But until you jump, until you plan, until you execute, nothing is going to change. And so when we talk about generosity, if our hearts are moved to rethink generosity, what we need is a plan to move ideas to action. Now, here's a problem, however, with plans a lot of plans fail. Speaking about New Year's resolutions, the common uh, research or the most uh, accepted uh, research will tell us that about two-thirds of New Year's resolutions fail within the first month. Isn't that awesome? Great. This is why a lot of people don't make them, because why make them if they're just going to fail? Most plans like that fail within the first month. There's a myriad of reasons why, but here's why I think underneath it all, here's what I think it comes down to. Along the way, when we make plans to move ideas to action, it usually requires a change of something. And we know this is true, that anytime there's a change, things get difficult. And I think the reason why most plans fail at the fundamental level is that we lose track and lose sight of why we're doing it in the first place. We lose sight of the why in the middle of the how. We lose sight of the why in the middle of the how. And so as you're trying to diet or change your eating habits or change your lifestyle and things get hard, it's fine to give up dessert or change your eating habits for a little bit. But after a little while, like that cake looks really good. And why am I doing this again? Same thing for a new habit of reading or anything. Like, why am I doing this again? It's hard to get up at 5 a.m. I know that was a good idea back then, but that was all the way back at January 1st. It's January 5th now. You know, it's four days in a row at 5 a.m. Like, why am I still doing this? And somewhere along the line, we lose track of the why in the middle of the how. And now I'm going to give you a phrase that's relatively um, cheesy, But here's why I'm going to give you something cheesy this morning, because I want you to remember it. I want it to be memorable, and I want you to be able to take it with you. And here's what I think is the problem with the why and the how, and that is this. A how unhitched from a why becomes nothing more than a nice try. A how that gets unhitched from a why becomes nothing more than a nice try. Like somewhere along the line, you can imagine that as a truck pulling a trailer and the truck is the why and the the how is the trailer. And when those become unhitched, you lose the power to carry it further. Like I lose the interest when it becomes unhitched. And so when our how, our plans get unhitched from the heart or the why, we're left with nothing but a good try. That was a good effort. Way to try to change. I mean, I know you didn't, but way to try. What I want to bring us back to this morning in generosity is saying, if we have a why, and here's what we covered last week, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 19, the Apostle Paul writes to us, and, he's, and he writes to the, the church, uh, to the young leader, Timothy, and says, Timothy, tell the church this, please. Tell them not to get rich anymore, but tell them to be rich. Tell them to be rich in good deeds. Be rich in kindness. Please tell them to stop just getting rich, but being rich. Tell them, and I put it this way last week, that it's smarter to get generouser rather than richer. Please tell them that. And the reason why, and he finishes in verse 19 this way, so that they may get hold of or gain hold of life that is truly life. 
Timothy, I know the people in the church want life and vitality and passion and energy and focus. They want everything that life can bring, the best of it all. They want that. I know that. Tell them. If they want that, tell them to be generous, please. That's the why. And if that's a part of your why and part of what you want, I'm just going to tell you, if you want the why, you're going to have to attach a how to that why. And if you don't attach a how am I going to be generous to the why, you're going to be left with a frog deciding to jump but not actually doing it. And if all you have is the how and you lose track of the why, you will have what the New Testament calls a form of godliness that denies its power. If you just get into the routine of giving in a particular way, but lose track of why I'm doing this. Our hearts get cold and hard and what people will look at and say hypocritical. So we need the how hitched to the why or else we just get, nice try, nice try. All right. Now, in order to set the stage for this, I just want to bring you back in history to when the church was formed. And then I want to walk you into three different passages this morning that I'm going to ask you to turn to in a few minutes. But to set this up, I need to go back with you to how the church began. Because the Apostle Paul wrote something to the early church that gives us a window into the how or into the plan. If you want to think about generosity, this message this morning is meant to give you a plan. Meant to be practical and tangible. Meant to be something you can look at your own giving and generosity through and ask reflective questions on. But in order to get there, let me just back it up for a minute and frame it up. Here's what Christians believe, that when Jesus walked the earth, toward the end of his life, he ended up giving what we call the Great Commission. The Great Commission shows up in each of the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then also in the book of Acts. The Great Commission goes something like this. Um, Young church, take what I've taught you and go into all the world, teaching what I have taught you discipling people, making leaders and followers of Jesus Christ. And by the way, I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. In all the persecution that you face, this is what I want you to be doing. I want the church, fundamentally now, as Jesus is ready to leave the planet, I want you to go and grow in depth and in width. I want you to take this message across the world that all people at all times will come to know who Jesus is. This is what we call the Great Commission. The book of Acts records for us the beginning stages, the growing pains of that church. And here's the unique thing in that period, that we had two different people, Jews and Gentiles, trying to come together to figure out how do we now relate. Because the Jews had a great history. The Gentiles had nothing. They were separate people. The Gentiles were critical of the Jews, and the Jews for sure would look down their noses at the Gentiles who didn't hold the same codes of conduct with what they wore or what they ate or what they celebrated. They were two different people. We'd send our kids to different schools. We'd go to different synagogues. We'd work in different places. We were separate and different. And all of a sudden, with Jesus, we read in a book like Galatians, there is no longer Jew nor Greek or Gentile. There's no longer that division. There's no longer slave nor free. That's gone. In the gospel of Jesus, he reconciles, is the word, he brings together all people under one. That is his invitation to know God. And so we have in the early church, in the book of Acts, records this tension of people trying to figure out how to work together. 
In Acts chapter 15, there's something that's called the Jerusalem Council. As the church is growing and people are coming to faith by the literally thousands, they're trying to figure out how in the world do we relate together. And as Gentiles come, Jews are saying, you know what? You need to not only believe in Jesus, but you also need to eat this way. And you need to dress this way. And men, you need to be circumcised. And the men were like, I don't think so. That's not going to happen. In Jerusalem Council, Acts 15, there's a decision made that changes the way that the early church functions totally. It's a landmark decision. And in that decision, the leaders of the early church essentially said this. The Jews said this. We should not make it difficult for those who are coming to faith. Like, we should not make it difficult. We should not add to belief in Jesus all these regulations. This would be wrong to do that. We shouldn't do that. At the same time, Paul, this apostle Paul, as he became, had a conversion experience. He was overcome by the the power of God, essentially, and he was changed deeply from a persecutor of the church to a great missionary of the church. And the apostle Paul, following the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, he begins to travel around the known world, and he does at least three major missionary journeys. And so imagine this for a minute. You have a church and peoples who are trying to figure out how do we relate to each other. We have someone named Paul who becomes one of the greatest missionaries of all time, taking this news around the world at the time. And questions abound. Like, how is this going to work? There's no mission agency, right? There's no overseeing group of people, right? Like, where are we going to funnel the money to? Because some people are going to have need over here, and others are going to have great wealth over here. And who is going to manage the distribution of wealth for this new growing church? And should we support Gentiles if we're Jewish, even though they're not acting the way we are? And can I bring myself to do that? And there's a great Jew-Gentile tension of how to fund and support and strengthen the early church. And interestingly, we get a window into their worldview in the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 says this, James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me, that is Paul, and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. In other words, they welcomed me in to their club. They said, welcome, you're one of us. We believe in you. Come on in. So they, re- they welcomed them, and here's what happened next. They agreed that we, Paul and Barnabas, should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And here's we have a window into the early church saying, please, as you share the gospel, as you move around and tell people about Jesus, don't forget the poor people around you. Don't forget the poor communities. Don't forget those without resources. Now, here's the problem with that. How in the world are we going to share resources around this world if we don't know what's going on? And again, who's going to oversee this? How's this going to work? How's it going to work? This is brand new for the early church. All of a sudden, to ask established Jews with great tradition and history to say, can you please support financially new believers in Gentile communities who you will never see and you will never connect with, but can you please send them an offering to support their work? They need to hear about the gospel. Can you support it? This is brand new stuff. 
And so the church is asking the question, how do we do this? And Paul needs to hitch up the how to the why. He needs to give them instructions on how to be generous. And it is a gift to us today as a church that is mature beyond what they were then in terms of our length of history. We've been down the road further. It is a gift to us to see in this opening moment of the church's history, how does one of the greatest missionaries of all time communicate to the church and say, church, this is what should mark your generosity. If you want to move from your heart to your hands and you want to do something with a desire to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. This is how you should be generous. Now, before we read it in the book of Corinthians, here's what Paul doesn't say, and this is so striking. Paul doesn't say, tithe. That would have been easy. That would have been known. That would have been attached to history, and the Jewish community would have been like, oh, We should have known. Thank you, Paul, for telling us. We just need to tithe. We need to give 10%. That's an easy thing to communicate. It's kind of shocking because Paul is steeped in Pharisaic tradition. He's steeped in Old Testament history. He knows the law. And he doesn't say to this early growing church, hey, church, what you need to do, just tithe. Everybody, come on. Buck up, everybody, 10% off the top, gross, not net to be more spiritual. Right? Like, just get it right, and just everybody tithe. Like, he doesn't do that. And so not only is it significant what he does say, it's significant what he doesn't say to start it. Okay, So let's look, because I want you to look into your Bible or on your phone, on your tablet, whatever you're going to look at in your Bible to see this and evaluate for yourself. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and then we're going to go 9, and then we're going to back up a book. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's no problem. There's a Bible in the pew around you. We'd be glad to give that Bible to you as our gift to you this morning. But Paul is writing to this church that is beginning to try to figure out how in the world do we be generous as we try to see the gospel get pushed out to the known world. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I'm going to be reading from the New International Version. And here it goes. And now brothers, verse 1 of chapter 8, and now brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. Let's pause it right there. Paul begins, and I'm going to begin here in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians. He's writing to the church in Corinth, and he's telling them, let me tell you a story because they wouldn't know, right? Like no one in the Macedonian churches tweeted about this event. Right? There's, there's no way to find out what's happening unless Paul comes and shows his slides, tells a story, and says, here's what's happening. And so Paul is testifying. He's saying, hey, church in Corinth, I want you to know there's a group of people in Macedonia. They're called the church. They have zero money. Out of their extreme poverty, they are bankrupt. Out of their extreme poverty, welled up rich generosity. 
That came, in verse 2, out of their most severe trial. That's, he's characterizing these people as people who approach trials on the back end with an overflowing joy. And out of their extreme poverty, welled up rich generosity. In fact, he goes further to describe the character of these people. And he says it in verse 3. He said, I'm testifying, I'm telling you, they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Corinth Church, I don't know how they're going to put food on the table. But I just want you to know, they gave, and they gave beyond what they were able to give. In fact, it's so amazing what they did. Verse 4, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the saints. Like, it's almost like Paul saying, um, Corinth Church, I didn't even want to ask them to give anything. They didn't have anything, they didn't have anything to give. I wasn't even going to ask them. They came to me. That's what he's saying. They urgently pleaded. And they said, Paul, can we please be involved in this growing movement? Can we please give? I know we don't have much, but I don't care. Can we please give? This is so important to us. You know what Paul didn't say? 10% would be awesome. That will fulfill your requirement. You're good to go. He didn't do that. He leverages their story and says, these people gave sacrificially, deeply sacrificially, above and beyond what they were able to give. And this is the character that grows the church. When people connect the why to the how in this way. He continues writing in chapter 8. You can read more about what he writes there at the end of chapter 8. But let me have you flip in your Bible over to 2 Corinthians 9. Just one chapter over. It might be the same page for you or not, depending on your Bible. 2 Corinthians 9, 5-7. He's writing to the same people about the same basic situation. And he says there in verse 5, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift that you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, let's pause it right there. In these verses, we see again some characteristics that move into some practical thinking about how we are to be generous as a church. And he says, this will be ready as a, at the end of verse 5, a generous gift, not as a grudging gift. We're talking about generosity, not grudgerosity, or whatever you want to call that, okay? That there is a real sense from the Corinth church that we, we can't wait to give this to you. This will be awesome. And remember this, he says in verse 6, and this sounds almost like a threat. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. It's almost like, you were thinking of giving five bucks? That's fine, you only get five back. But you're thinking about 50? <laughs> you're going to get 50 back. It almost sounds like that because of how I read into it. But I don't think that's what Paul's saying. He's just laying it out there and just saying, this is a, a biblical principle. And if you were here last week, we covered this biblical principle. You reap what you sow. I'm not threatening you with that. I'm just reminding you that's just the way it is. If you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. If that's what you want, then just sow sparingly. But if you want to reap generously, then sow generously. 
Like the generous man is refreshed even more, we read in the book of Proverbs. It's replete throughout the scriptures. This is just the way it is. And to make sure that people don't take it as a threat, Paul continues to write in verse 7, clarifies this. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. In other words, don't take what I just wrote and start making yourself feel guilty. Uh Uh-uh. Don't do that. This isn't about you trying to please me and how much you think you should give. Look into your own heart. In other words, this becomes very personal very quickly. Look into your own heart and decide what you should do. Not under compulsion, not reluctantly. Why? Because God loves a cheerful giver, not a grudging giver. God loves a cheerful giver because it is that characteristic that grows the church, that moves people. God loves that. So in other words, the giving is not meant to be driven by gimmicks or high emotion. I'm not going to come and play a a video clip for you and turn the lights down and turn the sappy music up and show you kids who are crying in the background and ask you for a million dollars and hope that I drive your emotions to give. There are times and seasons where we need to have things like that, but that's the exception rather than the norm. And the norm is not grudgingly or under compulsion, but planned regular giving. All right, now, in 1 Corinthians, this is the last section I want to take you to because I want you to see what Paul writes to these people in the early church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul is as clear there as he is anywhere about some hows to give. So this is the last place I'd like you to turn this morning. Back it up a little bit in your Bible. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 to 4. And he's writing to the church in Corinth again. This is a little bit earlier in history. Different scenario, but the same concept about giving. And he's talking about a collection that he's planning to take for, for God's people. So verse 1. Now about the collection for God's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. In other words, we tried it in Galatia. It worked. I'm now telling you the same thing. On the first day of every week... Each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will need to be made. Then when I arrive, I'll give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. This is very direct and very, very practical. Now look what Paul writes at the beginning of verse 2. On the first day of every week. You know what he's saying by that? Don't just on your own, in your own home, in your own place, don't just decide to give on your own. This isn't just first day of the week because it's the first day. The implication, listen, the implication under this is you will be meeting with other Christians on the first day of the week. On that day, I want you to set it aside. This is talking about church-wide giving you. On the first day, I want this to be a regular thing. I don't want you to think about it Wednesday when you get paid and the next two Wednesdays later when you get paid. I want you to begin to think systematically. On the first day, when you gather together, on the first day of the week, each one of you should, and then he says, set aside. Meaning, don't use it for coffee on the way into church in the morning. It's in another account. It's inaccessible. You have disciplined yourself to put it aside. You set it aside. You're not going to use it for anything else. You've made the decision. You've set it aside, not accessible. You've done that. You set aside a sum of money, and then he says, in keeping with his income. 
In other words, giving, generosity, should be proportionate to your income. And so if you are now 50, you probably shouldn't be giving the same thing you were giving when you were five. Like Your income has probably increased since then. And so giving in proportion to your income should also increase. And this is what Paul is suggesting, that giving is like this. It increases as your blessings increase. Saving it up. In other words, we're going to put this aside in an account, essentially for the early church to have. We expect there to be a regular, systematic, sacrificial, in proportion to your giving, offering that is just given. It isn't a highly emotional event in the sense of being driven by sadness or sorrow. I mean, it, it's just, this is a no gimmicks, just we're straight up, we reap what we sow, we're big enough to handle that. And so we want to sow sparingly, then sow sparingly. But if you want to reap generously, then, you know, then sow generously. Like, we're just going to do this with regularity. And so he says, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. I don't have to then go out and try to appeal in a special way to you. So as we think about all of these passages that Paul writes to the early church, let me summarize it this way, and there's some words maybe that you can begin to think about. Do these characteristics mark my generosity? Generosity based on these passages, generosity should be, first of all, routine. In other words, as you think about your own giving, your own generosity, is there a routineness to it? Or is it hit and miss? Oh, we didn't give last week, two weeks, oh, it's, how long has it been? What are we giving? I forget what it is. What's it? There's a routineness that Paul suggests that the early church adopt to get into healthy habits of generosity. And let me, let me pause this here, because I didn't say this earlier, and I really want to say this. As I'm, t- as I'm speaking to you this message, some of you uh, may be coming thinking, the church always talks about money. I-, I told us last week, if you were here, I feel really free to speak right now about money because I don't, as a, I'm not representing the church's need to have your money. Like next week, we're giving it all away. We, we have been blessed as a church. This series is not about please give more to the church. This series is about wanting you and wanting me to continue to take hold of life that is truly life. 1 Timothy 6, 19. Like, this isn't about please give more to the coffers of the church. This is about you and your spiritual life and your growth and responding and developing healthy habits, right? So I just want to say that, all right? So generosity should be routine. Generosity should also be sacrificial. We see that in the churches in Macedonia. There's a, a sacrificial element to this piece. Generosity should also be proportionate to my income. It also should be personal. As you decide in your heart, to give. It should be not coerced. You shouldn't feel this sense of, I've been kind of suckered into this thing. And it should be joyful. Certainly, there's other things we can add to this list, but it's a fair enough list to start to ask, as you want to move in your life from the, why do I want to give, to how am I going to do this? I just want to encourage you to think through what Paul wrote to the early church and say, is this me? Is this, is this me? Like, is my giving reflected up here? Is my generosity, yep, in line with this? And if not, where do the adjustments need to be made? Because when the how becomes unhitched from the why, all we're left with is a nice try, right? So if you don't remember all those words, and if the nuances of that goes away over time, maybe you can remember this silly little phrase that I made, when a how becomes unhitched from a why, all we're left with is a nice try. Another way to think about it is this way. That if your heart wants to be generous, your hands have to know what to do next. 
It's just not hard. Like, we know that. If you want to be generous and want to get a hold of life that is truly life, how? How are you going to do that? It was probably 20 years ago when I was dating this young lady named Jen Smoker. Good days. The days continue to be good and even better now. As we were getting closer to engagement, I ended up asking this young lady to marry me and got down on one knee and she said yes and then there was a bird stuck in a fishnet and saved that. I don't know why that's a part of the story, but it always shows up in the story. After we got engaged... People wanted to know immediately after that, what's the question they're going to ask me, or ask her? How did he do it? Right? What was it like? In other words, did he have a plan? Or did he just make it up? Because a plan isn't heartless, it isn't foolish. A plan is extremely loving and intentional. Right? And, and aren't you glad that God had a plan to save us? Aren't you glad that God didn't just from heaven declare, I love you down there? But in the fullness of time, when all things were lined up, God sent his son to this earth. He planned it. He planned it. And as this baby was born in Bethlehem and grew to be a young man and a growing man, he performed his first miracle in, I believe it's John chapter 4, the wedding at Cana, where he turned water into wine. And you may or may not know, but the Greek text behind that reads like this. He made this to be his first miracle. In other words, He planned it. He intended this to be. He didn't just happen to show up at the wedding feast in Cana. He planned to be there. Because God doesn't just make stuff up. God knows that coming up with a how is just as important as getting the why right. And I just want to encourage you. As you think about your own generosity, yes, the why is important, but we've got to attach a how to it. And as we come together to celebrate communion now, we're celebrating And we're remembering a God who in his generosity planned to redeem us and save us and draw us to himself. This is a great gift of God to be that planned, that loving to come to us in this way. I invite the um, communion ushers and the worship team to come on up now at this point. And as they come, I'm just going to explain a little bit more as they move through here. We as a church believe that Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins. And in that process, in getting ready for the cross, getting ready for that moment, Jesus and his disciples gathered around what we call the upper room and had a final moment with his disciples, a moment just with them. And in there, that time, he shared the bread, as we call it now, and the cup with them. And he said to them, essentially, this, continue to do this, even after I'm gone. Remember me in this way. And as you drink the cup and eat the bread, remember that these things will 
signify or reflect my body broken for you. So continue this habit and practice of doing this over and over and over and over again. And so we do this as a church. And so regardless of your church affiliation, if you're someone who this morning has come and you said, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, I believe that he's my Savior, we invite you to participate with us in communion. We'd love to have you share in this with us. The way we do it here at GPC, we're going to pray before each element. Uh, I've asked Pastor uh, Kevin to, to pray in just a moment for the bread, and then we will distribute that to you. We're going to hold it until everybody has been served and come back. We're going to eat in unity together, symbolizing, uh, symbolizing excuse me, the, the unity of the church around the gospel and around the cross, which is why we are here. And so it's a moment of celebration and reflection on the death of Christ, but on the hope of the gospel at the same time. And so as we prepare to take the bread together, I invite Kevin to, uh, to come and pray for us as we prepare for that. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your body that's broken for us. Lord, thank you for the body that you bring together uh, of the saints through your death to bring us ultimately to life together. Pray that you would continue to raise in our hearts an awareness of your presence, an awareness and a joy and a rejoicing for all that you've done. And let us not miss this moment. Let us not miss this opportunity to truly worship, to truly take a moment and reflect, to stop and think for just a moment on what you've done and what you continue to do through us. Lord, continue to bring us together. Continue to unite us through your body into this glorious body, this church that you want to use for your purposes. Lord, help us to now reflect on what you've done and who you are and who you want to be in us and what you want to live through us. Thank you for this moment and pray that we would make the most of it in the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.